Dr. R. Marie Griffith is a distinguished professor in the humanities and the director of the John C. Danworth Center on Religion and Politics at Washington University in St. Louis. She holds an undergraduate degree in political and social thought from the University of Virginia, a master's degree from Harvard in the study of religion, and a PhD in the study of religion with a focus on American religious history. She has written some phenomenal books, um, and the most recent one that she has written is this one that we have asked her to come with the specific central title, given our particular context, asking her the question, How Sex Formed and Fractured American Christianity. Everyone, please give a warm welcome to Dr. R. Marie Griffith. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much to Kevin and Danielle and the rest of the leadership here for inviting me. It's really an honor for me to be here, and I've enjoyed learning more about uh, your very interesting, really wonderful church. So thank you so much for that. Um, I'm happy to see so many of you here tonight, too, and I'm not going to pretend you're just here for me, uh, but your numbers do sort of confirm what the church leadership here must know, just as all college professors know, too, that if you put sex in the title of an event, the crowds will flock. So thank you uh, for being here. This is a very personal topic for me. I was raised in a strict Baptist church in the South in the years when the religious right seemed to be taking over both the Southern Baptist Convention, which was my denomination, and the Republican Party, uh, largely around the issues of gender and sexuality. The Southern Baptist Convention, you may know, eventually came up with the wives must submit graciously to their husbands uh, credo, which had never been part of the Baptist uh, faith before. So it was a, a sort of growing phenomenon, and I had a, a very devout Baptist mother who was also a feminist, and a somewhat more conservative father who was a Republican, but also very egalitarian in his views. So it was very puzzling to me to have a certain model of Christianity in my home and then to be watching what was happening to some parts of Christianity out in the wider culture. And I eventually made my way to the Episcopal Church only to watch it splinter over gender and sexuality as well. So there's a lot of personal stuff here for me, and I very much look forward to our discussion time together after supper this evening. And I also just want to say that I sometimes use these terms conservative and liberal probably more broadly than I really intend, so I do not mean to offend anyone. I'm usually talking about particular groups, and I think you'll recognize that. Okay, let's start in 2015 when the U.S. Supreme Court in June of that year released its 5-4 decision in Obergefell v. Hodges, which you remember found a constitutional right to marriage for same-sex couples, civil marriage that is. Each justice on the dissenting side issued his own strongly worded uh, dissenting opinion, which is very, very unusual. I'm not even sure this had happened before, that four dissenting justices each wrote their own disapproving uh, opinion. And the national reaction, you remember, was just as polarized as the court itself. So most progressives and, and liberals across the 50 states celebrated this outcome as a long overdue affirmation of equality for gay men and women. Many conservatives 
and most conservative religious leaders condemned the decision. And some of them blamed what uh, one leader called the emotional terrorism of the left and identified that court decision as a dire blow to religious liberty and the nation's welfare. So critics of that decision cited the Bible and church teaching to argue that, to quote one, the truths of scripture regarding human sexuality are not malleable, and neither the rulings of a court nor the pressure of secular culture can change clear and authoritative biblical instruction on men, women, family, and marriage. And that statement presumed that whoever was making that statement knew what authoritative biblical teaching was on men, women, uh, marriage, and the family. One um, conservative Catholic lawyer, uh, Robert George, actually equated the decision uh, to how Abraham Lincoln had viewed the Dred Scott decision in 1857. He wrote, this is an anti-constitutional and illegitimate ruling in which the judiciary has attempted to usurp the authority of the people. So anger over that decision, that was over three years ago, but that has really continued and utterly divides progressive Christians on the one side who believe God affirms LGBTQ people in the fullness of their lives, including their sexuality, dividing them from their more conservative Catholic and evangelical counterparts who deeply believe that same-sex activity is sinful and must not be condoned. So this isn't just a divide in the wider culture and the society. I I think the media misses this sometimes. It's really a divide within American Christianity itself. And there's some tragedy to that, uh, and uh, I hope we can talk more about that this evening. Over and over again, in fact, sexual depravity and uh, Americans' supposed embrace of various types of sexual immorality have been held liable for horrific acts of violence that God has ostensibly refused to prevent. So you might remember that two days after the 9-11 attacks, um, actually it was Jerry Falwell who was on a Christian television program with Pat Robertson and essentially said, I blame the feminists and the pagans uh, and the homosexuals and uh, you know so forth. I point the finger in your face and say, you helped this happen. And because we have tolerated you and your sexual sin, God will no longer protect us from these terrible acts. And actually, a similar kind of argument has been made by Mike Huckabee after the Sandy Hook shootings, by James Dobson after, I think, the Aurora, Colorado shooting. Some of these horrific acts of violence that have happened in our society have been blamed on feminism and sexual sin and the rest of America's toleration for that. So, yeah, as Kevin mentioned, my question has been, why? Why sex? Sexual purity, meaning virginity before marriage and nothing but celibacy outside of heterosexual marriage, seems like almost an obsession and really an issue, maybe the most pressing issue at the core of our polarization. I mean, Christians could be obsessed with many other things in society and politics, like poverty 
or world hunger, mass incarceration, the lack of stewardship shown to the natural environment, family separations at the nation's border crossings, racism and police killings, including in my backyard of Ferguson, Missouri. And, of course, these issues do get emphasis for, by, from many uh, Christians and a lot of emphasis from leaders like the Reverend William Barber and Tracy Blackman, and I believe your leaders here. But they still don't get nearly the same political traction and passionate emotional following as issues relating to sex. So I think to really understand how we got here to this seemingly intractable culture war over sexuality, we need to understand a deeply historical preoccupation with sex really at the, at the heart of Christianity. I've, I've seen it as this preoccupation with sex and how then this has shaped subsequent American political debates over everything from women's rights to gender roles and sexual mores. Now, what I think of as the preoccupation with sex and sexuality came out of the long history of church debates, and a lot of historians of of, uh, ancient and medieval Christianity have written about this, from Paul to Augustine, Aquinas to Calvin, and many others in between. And in America, this preoccupation was made all the more powerful by entrenched notions that really go back to the Puritans, that Christian morality should provide the basis for our nation's laws and politics. And and I want to say, of course, religious leaders outside of Christianity have also been involved in these great debates over morality. But for most of U.S. history, until quite recently, Christians did play a dominant role in American policymaking. And so, too, Christians have predominated as those who have most vigorously mixed sex and politics and waged the most passionate battles in this arena. And I want to suggest that by the time Obergefell came down in 2015, the rupture between Christian antagonists in the sex wars almost felt irremediable. One could plausibly argue that American Christianity itself had flat out split into two virtually non-overlapping religions over these issues of gender and sex and sexuality and and others that get bound up in those two. So the historian's question is how did this all happen? After all, we didn't always fiercely debate sex. And for me, this is also, as I've mentioned, a question of faith. Why have followers of Jesus become so antagonistic toward each other over matters of sex? These questions about whether to ordain women, whether to perform same-sex ceremonies, and so forth and so on. And it's made Christians oftentimes hostile toward many that they consider sexual sinners. So what can people of faith do about this problem is my more personal question. So the book that Kevin mentioned that I recently finished, Moral Combat, tells a story of the steady breakdown since the early 20th century of what was once a Christian consensus about sexual morality and gender roles and subsequent battles over uh, sex and sexuality that resulted as this consensus broke down. 
So this consensus was really both Christian and national, as Americans across the board believe this. So think of it this way. Up until the end of the 19th century, uh, whatever else Americans disagreed about, and we disagreed about all kinds of things, right? Slavery, states' rights, urbanization, labor laws, and on and on. But despite all those disagreements, Americans across the political spectrum mostly took for granted as natural a sexual order in which men were heads of households, wives must submit to husband's authority, and monogamous heterosexual uh, marriage was the only sanctioned site for sexual relations. I mean, this was just a taken for granted. This was considered to be God's law and the way of nature. It was the modern women's rights movement, above all, the push for women's right to an equal vote on par with men, because voting equals citizenship, essentially. It was this that prompted a crisis for those shared assumptions that would ultimately lead to these cleavages in our politics and these clashes between those focused on their own religious liberty as they see it and those more focused on equal rights that transcend categories of sex and sexual identity. So let me just flesh that out briefly for you. So you'll remember it was in August of 1920, after decades of hard work by thousands of Americans, that women in the United States, and let's white women to be precise, won the legal right to vote in all state and national elections. Now, we think of that as something like an easy victory and one that was widely celebrated, and it certainly was celebrated uh, widely, but not universally. And in fact, it roused further determination among those who, for various reasons, resisted women's equality. There had always been antagonists to women voting from some factions. Many argued that granting women full citizenship rights would damage their reproductive organs. I kid you not. And it would hence threaten the sacred role of mother to which women were born. So Grover Cleveland himself in 1905 made this argument that the problem with equal rights for women wasn't so much that it would hurt the nation, but it would really hurt women. And women would no longer be women. And they would no longer want to marry men and bear children. Instead, they would go off and lead these decadent, uh, hateful, selfish lives. So there's actually a very low view of women bound up in much of this. So after women got the right to vote in 1920, there were these continued efforts to restrict women's equality in other ways. And they took place uh, most enduringly on issues surrounding reproduction, motherhood, and sex. And I want to say these were also shot through with assumptions of white supremacy and racism throughout. So the arguments that fueled these efforts cast the feminists uh, wanting equal rights as the product of selfish ambition and debauchery and anti-family values. And so the more that these groups fought against each other, a sort of fault line was created over that very issue that would deepen uh, dramatically over time. 
And you think about the battle much later in later decades over the very simple language of the Equal Rights Amendment, if anyone remembers this still. Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Period. That was the wording of that. And yet it was a, an emotional, political, uh, chaotically fought battle that resulted, of course, in the Equal Rights Amendment not being passed in uh, the 1970s. So, and that kind of tracks this story to a T. The activism of many, many women, by the way, like Phyllis Schlafly and others, you know, were also working very hard to restrict women's rights and frightening people with tales about the, the kind of terrible world that was going to result if women had true equality. And so by the time we're in our own moment, it's, we almost practically assume that Americans, all of us, including Christians, must take sides in a fight that is sometimes described as being between gender and sexuality rights on the one hand and religious rights on the other. You know, this is a common kind of uh, way to frame these issues today, which is very tragic, I think, to sort of see these things at, as being at odds with one another. So in one important way, debates about these issues can be seen broadly as a conflict between change and tradition, at least in a, a very specific sense. So those who oppose changes in the norms governing social expectations and, and uh, traditional norms around sex and gender versus those who are comfortable with at least some of those changes, or who grow more comfortable with time. So think of it this way, and this is where I recognize I'm overgeneralizing somewhat, but bear with me here. So those who call themselves more traditionalists or conservatives tend to be of the first mindset, while progressives or liberals, from the moderate middle to the edge of the spectrum, tend to be of the second and value changes that they perceive to be inclusive Right, those that expand access to power and influence for people who were once excluded or marginalized, stigmatized for behaving uh, outside the norm. And it's very important to say that Christians, again, have stood on both sides of this debate. This is not a religious people versus secular uh, divide so much, which is frankly how the media has portrayed it over and over again. These are debates within Christian communities that have fractured churches, split churches, you all know this, and um, you know, done incredible damage to any notion of the unity of the broader uh, Christian community. And I want to say, too, when I talk about traditionalists on the one side and more liberals on the other side, I'm not trying to suggest that there's only two camps, you know, there's sort of two single coherent attitudes towards sexuality. There have always been people, uh, maybe most people, whose position on some of these issues might lean more conservative and on others they might mean uh, more liberal, and plenty of people have stood in the ambivalent middle trying to determine what the right thing to do is. We can all identify with that. But ultimately, on any given issue around sexuality in the history that I'm trying to tell, the overall clash has ultimately crystallized into two general sides. So those who are favoring change and progress uh, on the one hand versus those keen to preserve 
tradition and uh, fearful oftentimes of the decay that changing views and values might bring. So over time, these two different attitudes towards sex and sexual morality became aligned with two increasingly oppositional outlooks on modern life itself. So one is eager to be open to modern ideas. It's inclusive of eclecticism and diversity. It's receptive to biblical scholarship, even if it changes our understanding of the Bible itself. And it's relatively accepting of women's equality and changing roles, right? Those kinds of attitudes tend to go together. The competing outlook has been more insistent upon traditional order. Uh, It resists many changes to the status quo. It has typically perceived biblical scholarship to be threatening and therefore something to avoid. And it tends to be wary of shifting gender norms and changing attitudes toward sexual morality. Uh, Now, of course, these different attitudes have been live in many historical times and places, certainly in America. But once they were much less widely aligned with opinions regarding sexual morality. That's what's gotten bound up. So more and more over the course of the 20th century... Attitudes toward sexual ethics have signaled attitudes toward modernity itself. So this openness to changing sexual norms has often accompanied a growing sense of uh, gender representing not so much a fixed category of male versus female or complementary classifications, so much as sort of, you know, what some people in the academy at least think of as more fluid manifestations across a, a spectrum. And resistance to changing norms has more typically reflected a belief that male and female are fixed categories. They are, uh, the, the difference in reproductive organs is proof that the divisions are part of biological nature and God's divine plan. And so if male and female are these uh, fixed categories and, and embodied oftentimes in men's authority over women and fulfilled in female chastity, followed by marriage and childbearing, then a lot of things fall outside the norm and are going to be considered not only threatening, but profoundly sinful and, and wrong. So I'm just outlining kind of in a general way how these attitudes have sort of come together. And what's important here is that these competing outlooks have sort of shaped each other and fed upon each other in kind of a dialectical process over time. So progressives may gain in liberalizing or legalizing certain practices, like think about birth control, which was legalized, you know, over the course of the 20th century, or sex education in public schools, which became a real thing in the 1960s and 1970s and has been quite controversial over time. So when the liberals have sort of won those battles, it has confirmed the conservative opponent's sense that modernity is sinful and has to be fought against, reacted against. 
And in turn, when conservatives have won the battle, so when they've managed to fight back and restore uh, you know, what they see as the old values in, in some particular school board fight or around creationism, right, around different kinds of issues, that has confirmed the progressive sense that these issues are absolutely crucial to progress. And so these groups have sort of shaped and fed on each other and often fed on fear of their, you know, frightening their own followers on both sides with the dire consequences that they want to say will come if that other side gets its way. And this is partly how we've come to such a polarized uh, moment today. And I want to say the special sauce, as it were, that has made these issues so very fraught and contested in the United States, in contrast to many other countries where these issues have not been nearly as fraught or a part of the politics, seems to have been a couple of things. And I would suggest that it's partly been a politicized wing of the all-male Catholic hierarchy and conservative Catholic laypeople and, and perhaps fired up by the nation's long history of anti-Catholicism, right, which is very real. Protestants used to be profoundly anti-Catholic. Um, so, but that kind of politicization of a certain part of the Catholic hierarchy combined with a highly politicized evangelicalism that has been deeply committed to gender hierarchy in the church, the family, and society at large. So as I've sort of looked at this history, I've seen what I think of as three core fears in all of this that have been stoked over and over again. The, the fear of women, which I've already suggested, or what will happen if women get equality uh, they won't want men, they won't want to be mothers, they'll leave their children, abandon their children. That one comes up over and over again as sort of a way to mobilize the troops on the conservative side. Uh, you also see a very common fear of the other, whatever the other might be. Uh, in some periods of time, that fear has been aroused around uh, against African Americans. It's been aroused against Mexicans against Muslims, against immigrants, different groups coming in. And you see that kind of bound up, the stoking of fear. What will happen uh, if these brown people, this is the white people talking, if these brown people gain you know, full rights and are full citizens in this culture? I've seen that one over and over again bound up in these issues. And then thirdly, uh, the fear that I've seen over and over again has been somehow the decline of civilization itself and American greatness so there's this lament that America is a once great nation that has fallen from glory because of the sexual sins of its own people. This is a, a, a view articulated over and over again. So just to mention a few of the issues that I write about there, in case any of you would like to ask questions about them um, during the discussion later on. So the, the first major controversy that we see in American history over these issues after suffrage is the birth control movement, which was a profoundly divisive movement in the 1920s and thereafter. Protestants pretty quickly came to accept birth control as being moral for married couples. And Catholics, as we know, did not. 
And that became a profoundly dividing uh, divisive line over time and has taken many twists and turns. So I write about that. I write about censorship and obscenity debates in literature and in film, which has also had a lot of Catholic and Protestant resonances. I write about interracial marriage and racial love and marriage and the battles over that that sort of culminated in Loving v. Virginia, the case in 1967 that legalized interracial marriage, but of course racism driving so much of our culture uh, for all time, apparently. I write about the Kinsey reports in 1948 and 1953 and the sort of scandal that emerged from these, that women were more sexually active before marriage than the norms of the time suggested. So in Kinsey's findings, and this was 1953, uh, only about 50% of, of women were virgins when they married. And this was scandalous for the time, and Kinsey reaped a lot of controversy across Christian communities for that, as well as a lot of progressive Christian support for what they saw as the pastoral implications of his work. Ah, now we can understand the married couples coming to us with problems. We can treat them with more compassion and respect and understanding. Um, I write then about the sex education controversies of the 1960s and 70s. I write about the abortion debate, which is, of course, not only about sexuality, but it is in part about sex and sexuality. I write about sexual harassment and the very, very different responses to Anita Hill uh, when she uh, made the famous charges against Clarence Thomas, and then Paula Jones when she made even worse charges against Bill Clinton, and how very differently these cases were treated depending on what political side one was on very often. Uh, And finally, I talk about homosexuality and uh, same-sex marriage and focus on Gene Robinson, who is uh, the first gay bishop uh, in the Episcopal Church. So all of these are people who reaped extraordinary hostility and hatred in their own time, even though most of the people I just mentioned are people of faith, have been people of faith themselves, Christians. Um, And their stories are just part of this larger unfolding conflict, really over the very meaning of morality. What does it mean to be a moral person and a moral Christian in the world? Now, what I've found in my research about Christian attitudes towards sexuality over and over again, and I want to mention this because I think this is really important, is a near constant resort by Uh, morally aggrieved parties who don't like the way one of these issues is going to claims of religious persecution and the unjust abridgment of their religious liberty, which I mentioned earlier, religious rights, right? So today's persistent claim, and we hear this over and over again, that the state is infringing on my religious freedom has actually been a pretty constant claim over the past century, at least, And to me, the evidence is very clear that these claims of religious persecution are most powerful and most successfully spread among lay people when they are attached to traditional Christian ideas about gender roles and sexual practices. So think about it. Opposition to even the public discussion of birth control in the 1920s was most successful when it claimed that women, if they were given the ability to prevent a pregnancy, would forsake their God-given 
role as a wife, wife and mother. And this decadent selfishness would destroy families and impinge on the religious freedom of Christians to live in a Christian nation. Opposition to the literary circulation of writers from D.H. Lawrence and James Joyce to Henry Miller, James Baldwin, and Judy Bloom was often couched as the necessary freedom for decent Christian parents to raise their children in a healthy, pure environment. And the idea often being that smut took away that freedom, right? Local battles waged by Protestants and Catholics against sex education materials uh, prepared by public health officials gained fervent support by claiming that those sex education programs in the schools took away parents' freedom to teach their children what they wanted and what they believed was true and moral about appropriate sexual behavior, and that it introduced immoral possibilities to children um, over, over there. So over and over again, I could go on, this notion of that these changes and acceptance of these changes around gender and sex impinge on my religious rights. And certainly not all Christian critics think this way, but these are widespread, popular ways of thinking about religious freedom and religious liberty uh, in ways that I think are very much worth our observation. Um, And I think this will make sense to you that there have been a number of, I don't need to tell you this, I'm sure, uh, religious leaders who I think for years have have almost been working to persuade people in the pews that they are persecuted as Christians. Uh, Feminists are taking away your right to find dignity in the role of a submissive wife. Or gays are taking away your rightful access to clean entertainment and a wholesome culture for your children. And, And finally, the government is taking away your fundamental liberties by granting too many rights to the secularizing enemies of Christianity. I mean, we've heard those things over and over again. And frankly, the more that people feel themselves to be persecuted, the more desperately they will search for redress and reparation, perhaps in a would-be leader who promises to make their once great Christian nation great again. So these things get tied together. So nearly a full century after American women gained the right to vote and fought successfully for the right to speak publicly about birth control without fear of arrest, our colossal clash over gender and sexuality is really as live as it's ever been. And I think we have seen that in 2016 and uh, and thereafter. Now, this is really where you come in, where we come in. So... Followers of Jesus and others with like-minded commitments to loving the neighbor, serving those in need, and living a life that's not purely about selfish gratification have a critical role to play in our society, and I would suggest perhaps today more than ever before. Now, I am neither a theologian nor an ethicist, and I do not have any ministerial or pastoral training whatsoever, so I can't pretend to offer you a sophisticated blueprint for a new Christian sexual ethic. But I'm very heartened that Kevin and Danielle and all of you are so committed to these conversations. I know you've had conversations around sexual ethics already, 
and they're committed enough to bring historical scholarship like mine to you, even though it's a painful story that I think I have to tell uh, for Christians across the board. Because it's often been Christians in America who have not loved their neighbors when their neighbors were feminist or queer, just as it has often been white Christians in America, women and men alike, who have not loved their neighbors when their neighbors were African-American, Mexican, or Muslim. So it's my conviction as a, shall we say, seasoned historian, and also someone whose personal life has been steeped in many strands of the Christian tradition since birth. It's my conviction that Christians, not all, but some Christians have deeply distorted the scriptures and vastly overestimated the emphasis there ought to be on sexual difference, gender roles, and punishing ordinary, consensual, non-harmful sexual behavior. Now, I don't mean to suggest there should be no norms or rules around sex or no restrictions on what is allowable, but I do think that the rules that I and I'm guessing many of us were taught as God's obvious truth are not so obvious after all and deserve some major rethinking. And the tradition won't fall apart if that happens. So it's time, I think, for a new sexual revolution. Because when we refuse to rethink the norms that aren't working well for many people, we wind up with other distortions, such as the teen hookup culture that I've learned a lot about, probably too much, from my own adolescent daughter. And that I am convinced can do enormous damage to young women's and men's sense of themselves as responsible, caring persons. Getting drunk and rebelling against the norms of old is not a sexual ethic. But because there has been so much for people to rebel against and so little attention paid to viable, healthy alternatives to outmoded prudery and misogyny, I frankly think the sex lives of many young people are chaotic, self-destructive, and destructive to others. And I fear to think about the long-term consequences of the hookup culture in a youth culture already made profoundly lonely and even depressing because of things like social media and the, the desperation for likes. I don't think it's just because I'm an old fogey that I do worry about my own children's loneliness and their capacity to sustain loving relationships of any duration. So I am not exaggerating when I say that I believe the need for a better sexual ethic is truly a life or death issue, both for those who have been oppressed by the old morality and those who are simply lost without any foundation. You know, the Obergefell decision recognized the urgency of these questions. If you read it, you know that Justice Kennedy, who read uh, the decision from the bench, started with, the nature of injustice is that we may not always see it in our own times. And I think much can be said in the same way about the church's long antipathy toward the equality of women with men and of LGBTQ people with so-called straights. 
the nature of injustice is that we may not always see it in our own times. But once we do, we can start to do something about it. So thank you.